Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. One of the nation's preeminent not-for-profit theater groups has been around now for 50 years. It's the public theater that was started by Joseph Papp. Joe Papp back in, uh, well, 50 years ago, the mid-50s, had the idea of free Shakespeare in the park. The uh, company has developed quite a bit over that half century. They now have their fourth artistic director, actually the first one to claim the title of artistic director, and the person of Oscar Eustace, our guest today on Downstage Center. Welcome, Oscar. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. For a lot of people, Oscar, they're saying, oh, this guy's new to New York because uh, you've been working most recently up in Rhode Island at Trinity Rep. But I was struck uh, by a comment that you made that you think of the public as your neighborhood theater dating back to the time that you ran away from home to go live at the performance garage. So, So tell us about those times and what the public meant to you personally in those days, and then we'll come to what you're doing now. That was the early 70s, Howard, and the times were different then. I, I left home at 15 and came to New York, uh, sort of like you would run away to join the circus. But at that time, I was running away to join the avant-garde. I had been um, seduced and radicalized and completely brought into the Soho theatrical environment through groups like the Performance Group, like Mob of Minds, like Robert Wilson, Charles Ludlam. I'd seen their work, become intoxicated by it, m- moved to New York slept at the performance garage, and uh, in 1975 got a loft. Um, and now, as a New Yorker, uh, we should make this a real estate story, right? I got a 2,500-square-foot loft on Great John Street for $250 a month uh, rent right around the corner from the public theater. And uh, during those years, 30 years ago, my teenage years, uh, I, my image of what a theater was supposed to be was formed by the public, was formed by what Joe Papp did by the absolutely intoxicating mix of Shakespeare and completely radical new work, of playwrights and performance artists, of culturally diverse, socially and politically engaged and wildly experimental work rubbing shoulders with Shakespeare. And that combination felt to me then and still feels to me like what every theater should be aspiring to. Well, I'm very impressed. 2,500 square feet for $250. That works out to about 10 cents a square foot. (laughs) (laughs) What can you get for 10 cents nowadays? (laughs) You can't even get a piece of gum. As as long as we're starting off talking about the past, let's talk about how Joe Papp, who at the time was working at CBS as a Mm -hmm. stage manager in television, Mm -hmm. how he got the idea to do free Shakespeare in the park and how the public theater has evolved. Just really what is the public theater for our listeners who who are not familiar with it? Joe had – Joe grew up in Brooklyn and then uh, Later on the Lower East Side, uh, Yiddish was the first language in his house. Yosel Paparovsky was uh, how he uh, came into this world. And Joe would always say that he taught himself English by going to the public library and reading Shakespeare. And he felt that may have been a slight exaggeration, but what wasn't, exagger- wasn't an exaggeration is that Joe fell in love with Shakespeare as a very young man. And Shakespeare was the key that he felt let him into the world of English-speaking culture that invited him in as a citizen to a world that was much larger than the world of his parents, that and yet that could embrace the world of his parents. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he did that at a public library, 
because, of course, what he ended up doing uh, 38 years ago was moving into an old public library, which is now the main building of the public theater. And that name, the public theater, resonates off of that public library because I think it holds many of the values that Joe felt, that culture should be free, that it belonged to everybody, and that the duty of those who are guardians of culture in a democracy is to spread that culture as broadly and widely as they possibly could. Began as free Shakespeare in the park. Began by doing Shakespeare out in the public for whoever he could gather around him in the different parks around the city. Eventually settled into the Delacorte Theater in Central Park where we still are. And, you know, all summer... We're giving away fifteen to 1,800 seats every night to whoever is standing in line wanting to see that Shakespeare. The greatest Shakespeare productions in America given away free to the citizens of New York. But then also in 1967, he added on to that mission the work of new writers, of experimental work, of boundary-breaking, diverse, thrilling theater that came from the streets – to by adding the public theater on Lafayette Street. And those two missions of offering Shakespeare to the people, taking the greatest uh, artist of the Western canon and giving him to the people on the one hand, and then on the other hand, trying to, from the people, add to the canon, make say that we are also the makers of culture, uh, remains the prime mission of the public. But not just Shakespeare. One little show that came out of the public theater that has become fairly well-known, A Chorus Line, originated with Joe Papp's public theater and eventually became, at that time, the longest-running show in Broadway history. And you have to remember that when Chorus Line first came, it was the most experimental musical anybody had ever heard of. Michael Bennett comes to her and says, I have an idea. I don't know. I want to make a musical. I don't know how to do it. Let me Just let me sit in a room with a bunch of dancers for a month. Joe comes up with some money, sits in a room. He, Michael sits there. They start talking. They start working. Marvin Hamlish comes on. Robin Wagner comes on to design the sets. After a month or so, Michael Bennett draws a line down the middle of the floor and says, that line is the essential thing in our set. Now, everybody stand on that. And out of that workshop process developed a chorus line, which not only, of course, is an extraordinary gift to the American theater. There are many of your uh, guests on this program who I think would say that Chorus Line was part of what helped turn Broadway around. When Chorus Line moved to Broadway, most of those theaters were dark. There was real question about whether the Broadway musical could survive. But out of that experimental little hothouse down on the Lower East Side came something that lifted all of our boats. To draw the line from what Joe Papp did in creating the theater. At the time that he created it, there was even off-Broadway as we knew it was just beginning and just getting its footing. And many of the theaters that here in New York have now become major institutions along with the public, uh, Manhattan Theater Club, Lincoln Center Theater, The Roundabout, and many other very worthy smaller companies didn't exist at all. What's the role? You've talked about what the role of the public was to Joe Papp. Where do you see the role of the public now because there has been such an explosion and such a growth in the variety of theater in New York City? That's, that's a beautiful question, Howard. And, of course, you're very well positioned at the American Theater Wing to see what that explosion is. But I have to say that when I look at the landscape now, I think that what we need to – in one sense, you can say that explosion is a result of the success of the public. 
Joe pioneered so many things from not only with Chorus Line but Two Gens, Pirates of Penzance, so many other great musicals that came out of the public transferred commercially and had substantial uh, runs in the commercial and Broadway arena. The success of that mission has led to a lot of other people emulating it. But when I look at the landscape now, I say that the thing that remains the most important contribution the public can make is to sort of very firmly stake a claim to that nonprofit arena to say that we are actually not here to transfer shows to Broadway. We are not here to make commercial theater. What comes out of us will become commercial on occasion, but that fundamentally what we're here to do is to give voice to the people who don't have a voice in the marketplace and to offer the riches of the theater to as many people as we can possibly get in these doors, to as broad and diverse a population as we possibly can. That audience access to the theater and that giving a place for the voices of artists who don't otherwise have a voice in the culture remains the prime mission of the public. And I'm not sure anybody else can fulfill it the way the public can. So who are those artists that you're thinking of? Who? Oh, geez, you, you know, we, we could start a laundry list here. But let me just start with the ones we're doing this season. When I look at a writer like Rinna Groff, who's played The Ruby Sunrise I just uh, uh, closed last week, wonderful young writer who I think the world of and I think the sky's the limit. She's primarily worked in the downtown theater scene, but in experimental theater scene. She's starting to turn a corner to write work that is more accessible to a broader audience. And when we produce her at the public, we're not simply supporting her work. We're also, in a way, putting down a challenge to say, we need you to write for a broader audience because, you know, you're writing for the same audience that's going to be seeing Shakespeare on our stage. And Shakespeare stands there as the implicit goad and reminder and goal to be reached for how broad a theater can be. Look at a writer like Michael John Lacusa, an amazing musical artist who has not yet written a successful commercial musical, but who I think is one of the most interesting and important writers in the musical theater today. The public has been a consistent home for Michael John, producing his work, again, regardless of whether it's going to turn a profit or not. That's not our mission. Now, eventually, I bet you Michael John's going to write something that's going to run for 18 years. But when he does... He'll be able to do that because there have been theaters that supported his work writing things that didn't run for 18 years. Uh, Jose Rivera, whose wonderful play about the last two days in the life of Che Guevara, School of the Americas, is coming up, is a writer who has a long history with the public and whose serious and beautiful achievement in the theater has started to be recognized also in film. He was nominated for an Oscar last year for his... Um, the Motorcycle Diaries. For the script for the Motorcycle Diaries, exactly. I, you know, I could go on and on here, but, but you can see there's just a, there's a group of artists, and I'd say the thing they have in common is that they're artists who are interested in writing in the big sense plays and musicals that engage the life of society. They're interested in reflecting our city and our times on stage. Well, a moment ago, you stated the mission of the theater. Yeah. You were just now wrapping up your first year, your first season as the artistic director. You succeed three other, you're the fourth person in the role. The others, notably uh, Joe Papp and uh, George C. Wolfe, took the title producer. You've taken the title artistic director. Does that mean there's a change at the helm in terms of what you, Oscar Eustace, will be doing in your day-to-day -day role? Will you be a producer or will you be doing other things besides that that they may not have done? Well, you know, I'm sure that I'll do things that they didn't do, and I'm sure they did things I won't do because these jobs are very personal, ultimately. And, 
you know, whether I like it or not, my own strengths and weaknesses are going to be reflected in the organization uh, for as long as I'm there. What I am, what what I feel like I'm committed to is the idea that the theater is there to serve as broad a group of artists as we possibly can. One of the ways that I put this uh, when I first talked to the board is that the public should strive to be a theater that can provide a home for every artist who believes in what we believe in and whose talent we believe in. So artists who share our values and who we believe in the talent, we have to find a way to make the public a home and a center and a hub for those folks. And that's not just about production. That's also about creating programs, whether they're development programs, residency programs, training programs, to make sure that it's a center for theatrical life, not simply a place where individual shows get produced. That, now of course the public has never been simply a place where individual shows get produced, but I'm hoping that that's a focus that um, I'm going to really have. Uh, well, I know it's a focus I'm going to have. I hope it's a focus I can successfully make the theater have. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the other thing that's also a change is that the public, after many years of operating in a different model, is now operating in a model that is much more analogous to the way most of the theaters in the country model, namely a partnership model between an executive director, Mara Manis, and myself as artistic director. And that's a choice that the board made before I came on board. And I think it's a very smart choice because it's a statement, I think, of principle that the public is going to be absolutely sound in its fiscal and managerial functioning uh, going forward. The public has always been the most exciting place to make theater in America. It's sometimes been the most exciting place to keep the books in America, too. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a reputation that we are leaving behind, and I think that we are determined to do so going forward. Well, you talk about uh, pitching the board for the job a year ago. You talk Mm -hmm. about uh, strengths, weaknesses. What are Oscar Eustace's strengths that you're bringing to this job? in terms of your experience and, and all that. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I'm just disappointed that your listeners can't see my extraordinary good looks, which are the thing that... <laughs> Other than that. <laughs> exactly. You guys can appreciate it, however. Um, the thing, it's a good question, and of course one should always be careful of assessing oneself uh, because I'm not objective. But what I think is that I care passionately about the work of other artists and always have. And throughout my career, I have done everything I can in order to support and develop the work of others. And that desire to create a home for other people and the uh, it's an ability and it's an inclination to be genuinely interested in the work that other people are doing is, I think, a characteristic of my career thus far, and I hope will be at the public. And you mentioned well. fiscal responsibility. When you were a Trinity Rep in Providence, you took you and others took a company that was having a lot of financial trouble, was deeply in debt in the hole, mm-hmm. and uh, you really built it up f- fiscally, financially, as well as artistically. Absolutely. Um, so you bring some other strengths besides just the artistic, fundraising and dealing with, with people and that sort of thing, I, I would assume. Absolutely. Um, I, I, again, it's my, my, my self-assessment is perhaps not as important as other people's assessment of me, but what I can say is that I feel absolutely comfortable in all of the different roles that an artistic director has to play from the rehearsal room to the boardroom, 
uh, to fundraising to the classroom setting, all of those. I, I can move between all of those different worlds and feel at home in all of them because they all feel to me like extensions of the same mission. I mean, one of the things, a very common thing you'll get as an artistic director is that people say, oh, don't you hate the fundraising? And, oh, my God, you know, I could never do what you do because I hate the idea of having to raise money. I don't hate the idea of having to raise money. I don't even hate the reality of raising money because it's not that different from what I do in the rehearsal room. Essentially, what you're trying to do as a director in a rehearsal room is convince a group of people in that room that what you care about is worth caring about. You're asking actors to make an emotional investment in a script. You're asking uh, uh, designers to care about the story enough to bring out their best. You're doing exactly the same when you're fundraising. You're trying to share the ownership of this extraordinary resource, the public theater, with an audience whose ability to help is through their pocketbook. Well, that's just another ability to invest. That's just another way of expressing caring. So it all feels like the same job to me, and it's a job I enjoy. Love. You've talked about funders. You've talked about artists. I want to turn to audiences mm. because in your time at Trinity, you did some very innovative initiatives to draw the, the Providence community in. In particular, I think everybody around the country was both amused and stunned by your decision to do a production of The Music Man in which you had a different high school band at the end of the show every night. But it was it was a way of demonstrating that that theater wanted the community in it. Uh, that same trick may not work here in New York, though it would be fascinating to try. <laughs> but I'm wondering, you know, how... How do you feel – where do you feel the audience of the public is now and are there are there initiatives that you're looking towards to try to bring in ever new audiences? Absolutely is the, is the answer to the second I hope, question. I hope so, but I'm um, curious to and, <laughs> You know, right now we're in a phase of long-range planning, which is involving some very deep discussion and soul-searching about precisely who we're reaching – and how we can expand who we're reaching. Because we're actually doing a great job. If you're in the park this summer, we performed all summer, you know, six nights a week, not an empty seat in our beautiful 1800-seat theater all summer. And we should point out, for the first time in a number of years, two shows in the park, because the downsizing had led to only a single production in the past few years. And Howard, that'll never happen again. Uh, We'll be doing at least two shows in the park for as long as I'm here, and if not more. Um, If we, you know, we actually had discussed expanding the uh, weather calendar since it's global warming now. I figure we can continue Shakespeare in the park through November. Wouldn't that work? But, uh, You look at that audience in the park, and it's an amazing audience because you have 1,800 people who line up for hours to get in to see Shakespeare. They are younger. They are more racially diverse. They are more economically diverse. They're a greater cross-section of this city than any theater audience I've ever sat in. But you make it available to them for free. Mm -hmm. How do you take those people and get them to show up down on Astor Place when it's not free? And not a, a just fun summer's night. Well, you know, that's the product of a lot of discussions that um, I, I have to be careful of getting out too, too far ahead of uh, my board of directors here. This is something we are discussing very earnestly. But what I just ask you to take your point seriously for a second, Howard. All of those worries that we have about the theater audience. Oh, it's aging. Oh, it's not. The kids aren't coming. Oh, it's all, you know, upper income, highly educated white people. It looks like the Upper West Side every time you go to the. All of those things vanish in Central Park every night in the summer. 
And one thing we know is that we give those tickets away, and that makes all of those problems vanish. Now, I'm not saying we should always give all our tickets away. That seems a little too radical even for me. But what you can say at that point is that clearly there is an economic barrier that has to be aggressively tackled. The if, if we're going to really reach the audience and make the theater a necessary part of their lives that it was for us, I assume, growing up. I, you know, part of it is you know there's a trend across the country. Every theater colleague I know would admit this, that there is a basic trend of accepting that you're going to have a, a slowly reducing size of audience, but you're going to increase the amount of dollars you squeeze out of every one of them. So you're going to get more money per seat even if you end up having less bodies. Now, from uh, the point of view of the artistic field we serve in, that's a death spiral. That's a strategy that will do nothing but reap the whirlwind in decades to come. And I think, again, if you ask what makes the public different from others, I think we have to take that question of audience access, of access to the greatest theatrical culture seriously, in a way that I don't think any of our other compatriots quite have to do because it's core to our mission. It's where we came from. Well, Joe Papp originally took the theater to the people, not just to Central Park, but throughout the city, city parks in general. Any thought to kind of doing that again, taking it beyond just the Delacorte in Central Park, going to Staten Island or Brooklyn or Queens or the Bronx? You, you guys, you're really smart. I should come on this program <laughs> more often. Not only is there thought, there's a whole program we're initiating. We are revitalizing the Mobile Theater Project, which is where Joe started. And over the course of the next two summers, we are rolling out productions in every one of the boroughs. But what the idea is, we feel like the times are a little bit different than they were um, back then. We're not going to put our show on the back of a truck and just move it around and show it to people. What we're going to do is take some of the best and most exciting artists working in the American theater, send them to locations in the boroughs, pair them up with community-based organizations, and have them develop productions that come out of the synthesis and clash of great artists working in communities who haven't had access to the theater. So our hope is that we will be every year producing five productions that could only have happened in Brooklyn, in the Bronx, in Staten Island, in Queens. Whether that's a adaptation of Merchant of Venice that's set in the Indian community in Queens, the South Asian community in Queens, whether that's a production of Twelfth Night that's working with um, uh, 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 gay and lesbian youth, whether that's a production, uh, a musical, this is my favorite one that we're working on right now, which is a musical version of Macbeth, the Scottish play, (laughs) that is set in the Bronx and is based on uh, the real estate struggle as a building goes (laughs) (laughs) co-op. And it's going to be fantastic. And we're working with some of the, the, the best, Tony Award-winning artists of the American theater. And if we can make those kind of particular collaborations work, I think we'll have something that, again, you won't see at any other theater in New York. Now, we've, we keep talking about your various roles, and, and you've talked about your support of other artists, but you are yourself an artist. You are a director. Um, 
obviously for any new artistic director, for any new artist, not that you've never been in New York before, but clearly there was there was a statement to be made by your choice of your first play, the, the, which recently concluded, uh, The Ruby Sunrise. It's a show you'd done a couple of times before at the Humana Festival at Actors Theatre of Louisville and then at Trinity Rep, I guess, in your final season. Right. Why that play to introduce you to the audience, to the funders, to the press. Um, what, what, what about that work appealed? Well, you know, in a funny way, Howard, the exact reason to use that play to introduce myself is that that play, doing that play is not about me. For me, doing that play was about Rene Groff, and it was about saying that, and, and in a way that's exactly the trademark I'd like to have, which is that this is a writer who's a New York writer, who's a downtown experimental writer, who's starting to make that shift to writing about themes that can reach a broader audience who's interested in history, who's interested in uh, 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 the voiceless, who's interested in writing about the relationship between the invention of television and McCarthyism, and mixes experimental form with an incredibly accessible narrative, and here she is, world. Here she is. That's what the public should be doing. That's what I should be doing. So should people now expect that this is what we're going to get from Oscar Eustace when he's directing? Or do you see yourself as a chameleon? I mean, most artistic directors, when they have a theater, one of the great benefits of having a theater is you get to decide what plays you direct. You're not waiting for somebody to invite you to their theater Mm. to direct. What's the work that... Is there work that you personally want to pursue, or are you subjugating yourself to the mission of the organization? Well, Howard, to be completely honest, right now it feels to me that my job in terms of lifting this organization to completely fulfill the mission that Joe so brilliantly established is much more important than what I'm doing as an individual artist or as an individual director. I don't know what I'm going to be directing next. Uh, I think I'll know when that project arises, when it's time to do it. But right now, the biggest concern that I have is, on the one hand, bringing back artists who've been important to the public in the past, and on the other hand, bringing in a new generation of artists who I think are going to be important in the future, and making sure that they feel like they've got a home at the public. And that's really where my, my, my focus is at the moment. We've alluded several times to Trinity Rep in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm. And before you took this job about a year ago, you had spent a decade or so in Providence running That's Trinity right. Rep as the artistic director there. And that was during an era of great uh, resurgence in Providence. Buddy Cianci was the mayor, and uh, he revitalized the city in so many ways. He's had some personal problems since then. He's mm. in jail now, but at the time, <laughs> it was a great era. Um, <laughs> That's a whole different story for that. People in New England are very exactly. familiar with because he was making headlines a couple of years. He was a very uh, very well-liked mayor, put it that way, and he had some personal He's problems. a good man for the theater. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> t- t- tell us about the challenges at Trinity, how you took a, an ailing company and basically you and a couple other people turned it around and made it very profitable. Well, but you know, it's interesting because it's exactly the same kind of issues I'm talking about here. Trinity had a beautiful history and a wonderful mission. It is not only um, the the dominant theater in Rhode Island. It's the dominant cultural institution in Rhode Island by a factor now of about 400%. It is four times as large as the symphony orchestra. It is six times as large as the Rizzi Museum. It is the mothership of culture for Rhode Island. When I first came there, I discovered that almost everybody in the state – 
had been to Trinity, even if they hadn't been since high school, knew about it, cared about it on some level, and some level for the ownership of it. But none of that was really being activated, and none of that was actually alive. It all felt in the past tense. And I felt like what my job was was to try to draw on the strength of the mission of the organization, draw on the love that the community had for Trinity, and bring that back to life activate that, build that fire up, blow on those embers and make it blaze again. And we were able to do that, I think, very effectively over that decade. And um, I'm incredibly proud of the growth that Trinity's experienced and of the uh, central place that it plays in the life of the community. But almost everything I've just said about Trinity could also apply to the public. It's got an absolutely brilliant mission. There's an immense reservoir of love for it among the American theater artists and the audience. And all I think we and, – and it's now on very solid financial footing. That's different than when I took over Trinity, let me tell you. <laughs> it's, and all we really have to do is figure out how, how we can lift up and make that mission uh, as alive and vibrant as possible in 2005. And things that you learned at Trinity, do you see yourself being able to use some of those same ideas and concepts here in New York? And no, question, no question that there are, there are basic principles and basic experiences I had that I can apply. However, it being the theater, everything's local. It's one of the things we love about the theater is that you can't electronically reproduce it or it isn't theater anymore. So ev- even the principles are different under local conditions. And a lot of what I feel like my first year here is about is about sinking into this community and this culture so I get it into my nervous system and can respond to New York with the degree of directness that I felt like I was able to to Rhode Island. I think on that note, a good way to wrap up and to say, Oscar Eustace, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Oscar. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.